0: Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. I was fairly ignorant to most things, as you'd imagine a nine-year-old would be at that age.
4: I was scared, I was upset, I had so many emotions running through my body.
5: I don't know why I didn't yell, or why I didn't ask her to stop. I made a joke. Oh, the seatbelt's keeping me safe. I just didn't realise how safe it was keeping me at the time.
6: My boyfriend got frustrated and snapped. When are you going to get
7: over it? I looked at myself like I was just a sex toy for for men because that's how I was brought up.
0: When I told people hoping for a kind, compassionate response, I got laughter and uh, boys will be boys.
8: You, You do become extremely fearful and even worthless and small, almost like this is in a way what you deserve.
2: This is the Still Not Asking For It podcast, and I'm Rory Banwell. In this podcast, we will conclude the stories we began in the first episode. We will hear the long-term effects that most sexual violence survivors will feel at some stage after their assault. The Australian Institute of Family Studies lists several contributing factors that can influence the impact of assault on survivors. They include the survivor's relationship with the perpetrator, the extent and severity of any accompanying psychological abuse, the severity of abuse and physical harm, the length of time over which the abuse occurred, the support felt by family and friends, the survivor's experience with health workers, police officers and the response by the courts and the personal history of the survivor. There is a range of short and long-term effects. Anxiety and fear are common and research suggests that this is normally at its worst at around three weeks post-assault. However, most victims suffer effects for years to come. Fears range from concern about sexual health and pregnancy to ongoing fears about safety in similar situations and also serious mental health consequences. I need to let you know that all names have been changed to protect the anonymity of those involved with the project. I must also warn you that some of this content may be triggering and contains intimate details about sexual and domestic violence. Should this podcast trigger any negative feelings, I urge you to contact your health professional or Lifeline on 13 11 14. As we heard from Zoe last week, it is quite often the people closest to us who perpetrate the worst crimes – the monster myth that was created with stranger danger rhetoric is not true for the majority of sexual assault survivors and when an assault occurs by someone closest to you it can complicate the processing of what has happened and how to deal with it. But I told my dad and he took me to the police.
6: I was medically examined but she was never charged and just two years later I would be forced to live with her full-time. Fears afterwards The memory would flitter in my thoughts, but I always ignored it because mothers don't bless their children. No one in my family ever spoke about it. It was not until after my mother's suicide when I was 15 that I thought about it at all. I still don't know what to do with the memory of what she did to me. It makes me feel alienated from everyone around me. The worst part is how much I miss her.
2: Despite everything. Zoe's assault occurred in bed with her mother, a place most would associate with one of safety. But as we hear from Hannah, who was sleeping next to her boyfriend when she awoke to her boyfriend's brother masturbating at the end of the bed, shining his phone torch on her, even beds that should be safe are often not.
0: I eventually started jabbing my boyfriend in the side to wake him up and his brother, with a shock stopped what he was doing and started looking around. My boyfriend asked what he was doing and he responded with looking for Panadol and left the room. I told him I didn't think this was okay and that he should tell his parents and he said he would, but he never did. We broke up shortly after. For a long time, I too thought it was funny because of the way my ex-boyfriend reacted. Like funny in a gross, childish way. It took me a while to figure out that what had happened to me had actually been sexual assault. When I told people hoping for a kind, compassionate response, I got laughter and uh, boys will be boys. People asked if I'd been sleeping naked, if the door had been shut and if the covers were over me, as if I had to protect myself from boys looking and abusing my body, even when I was asleep next to my boyfriend. It's been over a year since the incident and I've stopped telling people. The only person from whom I got a decent response was my psychologist. I think without that, I would still be treating this as one big joke. I cringe when I see his Facebook photos and whenever my ex boyfriend posts Snapchats of his little brother. He's joining the army in a few years, and with the statistics that come out of the women in the military, I'm petrified for the next girl who will wake up to him looking for
2: Panadol. Hannah touches on a very valid issue. In 2014, the Australian Defence Force released a report detailing the rampant unreported sexual assault within the organisation. The report found that the abuse was persistent and widespread. Shockingly, 1,110 of the accused perpetrators were still active members of the Defence Force. It was also found that the majority of these perpetrators were senior ranking servicemen and most victims were women aged between 17 and 20. Hannah's story also brings up another very common thread that I've found since beginning Snappy. I've had several women that I went to school with or grew up with disclose to me that they had several things occur to them during their late teens or early 20s that they've only realised were sexual assault years later. Most frequently, these women assumed that the behaviour they were being subjected to was normal, or they deserved it, or there was nothing they could do about it, highlighting once again the failings in our education system to give teenagers information about consent, what is a healthy sexual relationship, and what they can do if they have been assaulted. Even in my own personal history, I look back on jokes from my high school years that absolutely constitute sexual assault or harassment. How are we to know if no one ever told us? Whose responsibility is it to let teenagers know where the barriers are? We owe better to our children and future generations to educate about consent so that every experience is taken as seriously as it should be. This is similar to domestic violence relationships where the onus is left on the woman to leave rather than the man to stop what he's doing. A point where we intersect with Steph, who we heard from in the last episode about how quickly domestic violence can escalate in a relationship.
8: I mean, this, this person told me he, was, he thought he was capable of, of killing and, and murder, so I suppose in a way I became fearful that he could kill me if I tried to leave. But when I finally got out of that, as, as relieved as I was, it's still impacting on me today. I'm going through therapy and I'm still having flashbacks and nightmares. It's, it can also be, be hard on any relationships that I've wanted to form. I think people need to be a bit more understanding of victims that are in relationships and understand that it's it's not as easy as just packing your bags and, and leaving because these people control everything. They know everything about you. They know where you work and where you live and and they are capable of well you don't know what they're capable of so I think it's important that we don't just say hey you should have just left because that's really not helpful. That in a way just makes you feel like well I deserved it then because I didn't get out when I should have. I mean it was only three months for me and it was probably one of the worst times of my life. Sometimes I am feel like I I do relive it with nightmares and I think that I see him in a way I think I'm now uh, stronger.
2: As Steph highlights,
8: even short periods of
2: abuse can have long-term consequences on survivors. Most people do seek some kind of counselling or medical support, particularly in the short term, but often require support for their mental health for some years or even decades after the assault, particularly when the threat of running into your abuser is very real. Quite often survivors aren't in a position where they can pack up and leave their town, city or even their house in the case of domestic violence and if you live within a small community the rumours and gossip can cause further damage after an assault has taken place. Next we come back to Alicia who we left when she was dropped home by a security guard who found her in the toilets of a nightclub after her assault. After a conversation with a friend Alicia was encouraged to contact the police.
4: And obviously the thought of going to the police was petrifying, but I thought he can't get away with what he did. So I contacted the police and they came to my house the next day. Um, at the time, my parents were actually away, so I um, had to do it all by myself with no support there. So that was quite scary, letting two men into my house, that I had no idea who they were. And I had to make the very uncomfortable phone call to my parents to let them know what had happened. There was just constant depression and anxiety, constant worry about my body and is this my fault, did I encourage this, was this something that I wanted and that, I guess, in denial that this had actually happened to me. The court took about 18 months before we actually had a hearing. I had to be there as a witness because the police were actually charging him on my behalf. It was so hard. Just the thought of having to explain that to everyone, especially 18 months on, I thought it was even harder. The defence lawyer, he were trying to make me out like it was my fault. It's just so wrong the way they speak to you. They raise their voice, they suggest that you were doing something to encourage it, what you were wearing, bringing your personal business into it. I was able to sit there and get through the whole thing without having to get up and have a break. What I tapped into was, this isn't okay, these people can't get away with this. It is such a selfish crime to commit. It ruins the person the aftermath of the sexual assault is is an unbearable experience at times you've got to stand up for yourself and others that haven't been able to come forward that was my values on the day and I think that's why I just pushed through giving my evidence and the judge I remember his words was that's all we need from you that to me was a huge relief it was just like it's over and it just felt like I've had a million bricks lifted off my shoulders He was convicted to one count of indecent assault and one count of sexual assault. He received the maximum for a first offence, as the judge said in his final ruling, that it was obvious who was telling the truth and who wasn't. So he got a 12-month behaviour bond and a nine-month suspended jail sentence. He also got an AVO. He's on the sex offender register for the rest of his life. I still think that the punishment isn't good enough for what the person now has to deal with for the rest of their life. But at the end of the day, I'm really glad that he got something. He didn't just get a slap on the wrist. The best way I can describe it was that my soul was taken that night. And that's all from that one selfish act. And I call it selfish because it is. It's getting what they want and leaving that person to suffer. I live in a small town and he lives in the same town. I have actually seen him a few times. When I was first saw him before the court process, the panic attack was quite severe. Working for me was quite hard because I worked in a department store. So the thought of him walking in was a constant fear of mine. I still see him to this day and have in shopping centres. The last time I actually saw him was the best thing because he had his head down and I had my head up and I just walked past him. That to me was like, I've got the control now. I've got the power. You were brought forward for doing the wrong thing and now have to suffer your consequences and now I can walk with my head held high knowing that I got justice and just even that simple body language response was I'm so ashamed of myself.
2: Alicia is one of the very few survivors who receive any kind of justice for their assault. According to the Australian Institute of Family Studies, only 15% or one in six assaults are reported to police and less than 10% of those reported receive a conviction. It has been suggested that there is a systemic failing in the Australian judicial system as victims are not protected and often subjected to vicious accusations. And these legal proceedings are the only type where the owner shifts to the victim to prove that they were not deserving of what happened to them or that they had not provoked their attacker. Despite Alicia's attacker receiving a criminal conviction, she too still feels the consequences of the attack on her mental health and sees a psychologist regularly to help her process her emotions and feelings of doubt.
6: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.
4: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: In the last episode, Trish was in the middle of her assault when she realized that the person who was attacking her didn't resemble the person she had known for the last two years.
5: The last thing that I remember seeing is looking across at my porch light, thinking that somebody would come out and save me. That somebody would hear and stop it. And then I looked up at the sky and saw all the stars, and I drifted away. I don't know how long it was before he finished, but I remember cleaning myself up a little bit and putting my pants back on. I started walking back to my house, and he followed behind me when I opened the door, my brother was there. And he made it a point to say that I was to stay upstairs and the guy was to stay downstairs. I walked into my room and saw my friend sleeping in my bed. And I started crying. And my phone vibrated in my hand. And it was a text from the guy. And he had said, what, no kiss good night." And I threw up. And my friend woke up. And asked me if I was okay and I told her what happened and she turned the light on and she saw my clothes and my hair and she knew she knew I needed help to change and I was so sore everything hurt I woke up the next morning I really thought it was gonna be just a bad dream I stepped into the bathroom I pulled down my pants and I saw all the bruises and the cuts on my legs. Basically, my whole back was bruised from the car. I made sure none of the bruising was visible, and I walked out the back door. And he was sitting there having breakfast with my mom like nothing had happened the night before. He asked me if I could give him a ride home, and I was on autopilot. I got the keys. I drove him home, and he didn't say anything the whole way there. But when we got there, He hugged me and said goodbye. And I pulled up the road and I had to get out of the car so I could throw up. I was so confused because I didn't know what to do. And I called my friend and I asked her if she could come and get me. She got there and I showed her the bruises and I was telling her what happened. She told me that he didn't mean it. That he could have had any girl he wanted. So why would he do what he did to me? So I was like, yeah. You must be right. It must not have been that way. And I never reported it.
2: As I mentioned earlier, a lack of support often leads to survivors not disclosing their assaults for some time or even at all. As Trish explains further.
5: It's been six years since it's happened and it has not really gotten any easier because for the first three to four years, I pretended like nothing was wrong, like nothing had ever happened. By doing that, it made my anxiety and my relationships so much harder and so much worse than they ever had to be. I, within the last two years, have been diagnosed with severe PTSD. I have just started to deal and process what happened. I've told more people within the last two years than I told when it first happened because I really thought that it was my fault and I thought that he didn't mean to do what he did because the one person I thought that I could trust told me that it wasn't his fault and that he didn't mean it and I feel like a piece of me was taken that night. Like, I lost something that can never be given back. Since it's happened, relationships have been harder than I ever could imagine. I am currently married to an amazing guy, but it doesn't make it any easier because I go through phases with my PTSD where I don't want him to touch me or I don't want to sleep next to him. And it's not his fault, but it's my way of processing things. There's going to come a day when I see this guy and I'm scared of what's going to happen. I have hope that it will get easier in the future the more I process and deal with it. I have hope that somehow I will get justice for what he did. I think if I had known when it first happened that... I wasn't alone, that it's not something that goes unheard of it would have been easier for me to get help, but where I grew up, date rape or acquaintance rape, it was never something that was talked about when you heard about rape, it was always something that, where somebody you didn't know broke into your house so always lock your doors or walking down the street, this could happen so I didn't know that I could get help, I didn't know that this happened to other people, I didn't know was something that I shouldn't be ashamed of so I just want other people to know that they're not alone so that they don't have to go through what I've gone through for the past six years and that they know it's okay to reach out and to get help and to tell people until you're believed because even if the first person you tell doesn't believe you somebody's going to come along that will and somebody will help you
2: Trish lost a lot of friends who didn't believe her and who supported the perpetrator, yet another common experience between survivors. Roughly 50% of victims will suffer from PTSD at some stage after the assault, and 16.5% of survivors still exhibit symptoms 17 years post-attack. The long-term effects of sexual assault are difficult to quantify or study, especially when disclosure rates are so low, and particularly with regard to personal lives and relationships, as some survivors can't articulate how the assault has affected them long-term. Zach explains this reflecting on an assault that occurred as a child.
1: I never saw him again. Then I couldn't tell you who he was. I've got no idea who he was and i guess um out of that I left a pretty deep scar and I, I i was fearful of some people not all uh, i guess i figured coping mechanisms and i learned how to deal with things as i got older i figured out that uh, some people had dealt with things a lot worse some some people had had a lot worse experiences than i'd had and so i guess i got solace out of that i thought then maybe uh, maybe it wasn't all that bad But having something rattle around your head for that long, I think that was the hardest thing, is is never telling anyone. Actually saying it, getting it out, is um, pretty cathartic. It's it's good. It's it's good to be able to unburden yourself. I don't know whether it's uh, affected my life. I don't know whether it sort of left scars that gave me problems with relationships or gave me problems with socialising. It may well have. I'm glad that I'm able to, to have a um, a way to uh, actually get get it out and, and say it.
2: As Zach said, so often survivors feel that their experiences aren't as valid as those who have, in their opinion, suffered worse than they have. It's upsetting to think that so many people, like Zach, may have bottled up these experiences because we don't allow men the space to talk about assault without ridicule, or because they assume that if someone has a worse story than theirs, what right do they have to complain? Again, this leads to reduced rates of disclosure, and as we heard last week with Amanda, who suffered devastating abuse at the hands of a family member, she may have never told her mother about the assault unless her partner threatened to do so on her behalf.
7: So my mum was raped for years by her dad. I knew this because I'd found a letter that she'd written him, but hadn't sent him and explained everything that he did and what he, how he made her feel. She was never believed by her mum, but her mum always blamed her for... Them having a secret relationship, which was sick. So I, I knew this from a young age. And I knew after my brother died, if I told her this, it would just crush her. But I had to, otherwise he was going to, and she just did not like him at all. After I told her, she was so supportive and she believed me instantly. She'd be blame herself, and I, but I wouldn't let her do that. After I told her, it was like a huge weight that was lifted off my shoulders. But now the big secret was right in front of me. And I couldn't handle it. Went off the rails again. Partying, drugs, full-blown anorexia. But while I was on ecstasy at clubs and after parties, I started to attract other girls that had gone through the same sexual abuse. And I started sharing my story with these strangers. And they shared with me. It helped me a lot. I finally was able to escape my abusive boyfriend after a year and a half. But the partying continued. Over about six months, I met heaps of people that I was able to share my story with. And each time I told the story of my childhood, it got easier and not as painful. I then met my next boyfriend. He was charming and said all all the right things. Kind of too good to be true. He fooled me. I spent five years of hell with this man who was narcissistic. We had a child together and he sent me on a roller coaster ride that I was not happy or could never get off. It was a nightmare. He never hit me. But looking back, I would rather get builded every day than the emotional torment that he put me through. I can't really pinpoint exactly something that I could make sense out of it. It was just the constant lies, the constant bullying, the constant blaming. And because I was already so low and already hated myself, I instantly took on all the blame. I instantly took on everything he said. Everything was definitely my fault. And I didn't know he was narcissistic. It didn't end when we broke up after five years. It only got worse. He used my child to control me. He used the family courts to control me. And my poor boy was used as a pawn. He messed my boy up for years and it took me about 10 years to be free of his abuse. I still had to deal with the aftermath emotionally. And my boy, and I have PTSD, and at 14 years old, my boy has been suicidal, cutting, and is still being tormented by his dad.
2: Intergenerational trauma is one of the greatest consequences of sexual and domestic violence. Roughly 47% of children who grow up in abusive homes witness the violence, and in the case of Amanda's son, has led to serious mental health issues and self-harm. Thankfully, Amanda's story has a happy ending.
7: But my life has turned around 12 years ago. I met my current partner, and he has been the best thing for me. He has stood by me and supported me in the healing. It's been a rocky ride but he never gave up on me. I suffered depression and anxiety for years and had a nervous breakdown about six years ago, but it was the best thing to happen. After hitting rock bottom, the only way is up. I got on antidepressants and had counselling to treat my anxiety and panic attacks, which gave me the tools to help myself. I have been off antidepressants now for three years and handling things a lot better. I've been able to look back on my life and find positives in most of the bad things that have happened. I realise that there have been a sequence of events that have led me on the path to self-discovery. The boyfriend that beaded me made me unlock my secrets of my childhood, and he made me tell my mum, which led me to release and heal my childhood. The narcissistic boyfriend taught me about the evil out there in the world, and I can now spot an abuser, a narcissist, from a mile away. He has led me to be able to help my friends who are in the same situation. Having anxiety and depression and PTSD and learning the ways to cope has helped me be able to help my son, who is now going through it. And I'm now so passionate about helping other victims.
2: Amanda is using her story to help other survivors, to try and break the stigma that is associated with sexual assault and take her story back to use as a coping mechanism to share with others and let them know they aren't alone. Brooke suffered two assaults and took the second in her stride. After being violently raped after work, she shared her story online and tried to use it as a way to empower other survivors. So when it finally caught up with her, she wasn't sure where to turn.
6: So eventually, when I did fall apart, I felt ashamed. Two weeks later, I had a panic attack at work. My friend had to rescue me from the bathrooms and take me home. I had to resign. I had to go on Centrelink payments. I felt like I'd failed. Loud noises made me burst into tears. Play fighting with my boyfriend made me burst into tears. I recoiled from being touched. I started to avoid phone calls from the detectives. I couldn't bring myself to look at another sheet of photos knowing that I couldn't identify this person anymore. My brain had started to distort the memories and I couldn't trust it. A year or so later when I still wasn't quite back to my old self, my boyfriend got frustrated and snapped, when are you going to get over it? The man who violated me, actually men who violated me, Both never answered for their actions. But I've had to relive them every day. Every time a man in a hoodie walks by. Every time a jogger is behind me. Every time my wrists are held. Every time someone recites a rape joke. So I guess the answer is that I'll never be over it. It's a part of me now. And I carry it with me every day. What I would like to say to anyone who's suffering in silence is that I know it doesn't look hopeful uh, in the media when offenders are getting slapped on the rips wrists and victims are placed with blame. But we need you more now than ever. It's a sad reality that often people need to put a face to rape to be able to empathise with the victim. And you don't have to be strong or brave. You can be human and vulnerable and that's okay. I'm not always okay. But I was never, ever,
2: ever asking for it. If this podcast has raised any issues, please contact your health provider or Lifeline on 13 11 14. For more information on the Still Not Asking For It project, please see our website at stillnotaskingforit.org.